Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today's a guest that comes back. I haven't talked to this gentleman since way back on the Global Energy Leaders podcast days, which is many, many moons ago now. Five years, it feel, I think it, um, it's been. But anyways, uh, we've been chatting on Twitter and uh, wanted to get him on the podcast. This is Dr. Paul Sullivan, who is uh, at Johns Hopkins and the National War University? Defense University. Defense University, yes. I know there's something about combat in there. Dr. Sullivan, it's been a long time. How are you doing today? Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, That's my 22nd year at the National Defense University, and I will be retiring at the end of this month to do some other things. Oh, well, congratulations. Yes. Uh, uh, Big plans for the future, or are you going to try to take it a little bit easier? I don't know how to take it easy. (laughs) I'm just changing what I'm doing. 22 oh, years is time to move on. It was a great run. Great well, place to be at. Well, congratulations. And hope and look forward to hear what you have next. All right. If I could just give the uh, scene setter here and then we can go sure. from here. Go ahead. Uh, the energy transition needs to be just. And it needs to have reasonable economic and social disruptions for it to be acceptable to the public and many governments and businesses. If it's not reasonable and these disruptions are in the extreme and zealotry is involved on either side, then people are not going to accept it and there could be a huge backlash. And any attempt toward an energy transition or resolving some of the climate change issues could go steeply in reverse in some places and in some industries. So strategic thinking is required. Critical thinking is required. We need to know what the realities are. So you mentioned a word there, just. Yes. Very interesting concept because, um, first off, from a geopolitical standpoint, that connotation is going to uh, differ depending on where you're at in the world. So, for instance, I was on a call the other day with some sub-Saharan uh, uh, African nations. And at the end, uh, it was myself and another panelist. And um, at the end, um, one of the um, people from, well, I don't know which country it was, but uh, one of the sub-Saharan nations come on and said, hey, talking to other panelists, I believe, you're kind of against oil and gas. We are just now getting started in the oil and gas hmm. business. So we talk about justice. Maybe unpack how... Globally, we should think about this because it's, it's, it's very, I think the Americans um, uh, don't think through the issue well enough, both sides, to your point. Um, but also, it, it's going to depend on if you're in Saudi Arabia and you want to get rid of, you're telling the Saudis you want to get rid of oil tomorrow. Well, their whole economy has been based upon the oil business. Um, so how do you think about justice? Or being well, justice? We can even start in Ohio on this issue. Uh, and people in Canada coal miners losing their jobs. Uh, And then uh, some of the extreme environmentalists saying, who cares? They worked in an evil industry. That's not justice, certainly, when you think about coal miners losing their jobs and people working in the shale gas fields and others working maybe in nuclear plants. Justice has a lot to do with having people having a chance for a good life, uh, for development, for education, for human security. And that would apply also, let's say, to a sub-Saharan African country or to a Latin American country like Guyana, which is really just starting its oil fields now. It's just starting to get some wealth out of those fields, maybe some gas in there as well. And then some outsiders say, no, you can't, you have to keep that in the ground. What does that mean for justice to a Guyanese? Even though that money may be wasted through corruption, as it often is. And that's another aspect of justice. Uh, We're seeing a sense of justice, in quotes, work itself out in OPEC these days. When the Emirates stood up and said, no, we want to be able to produce and sell more because we put a lot of money into developing our capacity. So it's only just for us that we're able to produce and export more of it. They're also looking at justice as we have this stuff in the ground. And if we don't get it out before the energy transition gets really moving quickly, 
it's stuck there and it's not going to help us. But they can twist that a bit by looking at the oil in particular and the gas to some degree to produce hydrogen and then have an alternative source of income. But if you're sitting in a country like Equatorial Guinea, which is massively unjust anyway, you know, the, the average income per capita last time I checked was about $30,000 a year, but the average person uh, probably made 150 to 200 because it's so bloody corrupt. What would happen to those very poor people if Equatorial Guinea could not export its oil and natural gas? It would be even worse. It would be like Haiti, a poor country offshore of a rich country with great corruption. Certain poor countries have these resources and they want to be able to reuse those resources. And yet there are many people, and this is one side of it, what I guess some people will call the far left, uh, saying, no, you can't do that because that's going to increase climate change. Yeah, I get it. Climate change is happening. And then there are people on what some people decide is the uh, far right who say, we have to get all this stuff out of the ground. Who cares? Climate change doesn't exist. Let's move forward. Justice is in the eye of the beholder, but there are certain basic aspects of this. And the number one one is human security and human betterment and whether people think they're having a decent life. I was just listening to the Gallup report on uh, how many people in the world think they have a good life. Mm. Sad. Absolutely sad. How many people think they have a great job? Very few. You know, you're talking 280 million people think they have a great job. And we have, what, 7 billion people in the world? 5 billion people are adults? 280 million think they have a good job? When an energy transition happens, people need these good jobs. They need human security. They need a good life. Well, okay. So you have, you did a great job of, of touching on a lot of varieties. And then you have the people, let's just to take it even a little bit, maybe one more ring to add in, is people who are benefiting from fossil fuels. Um, and I pointed this out on a previous podcast, uh, life expectancy in some areas, um, infant mortality rates that have dropped. Um, and so there's, that's not a, that, that's a historic result of, of the use of fossil fuels. And it doesn't mean that it has to continue, but it does need to be part of the consideration moving forward is, you know, there is, as we move to a better standard of living and to continue the standard of living, we do have to stop and realize at least how we got here. And it feels like the conversation is too much is how we got here was a bad thing. And it's like, well, okay. Um, I'm not so sure I agree with that because the standard of living, generally speaking, is at the all time high. Now there are pockets of the world where it's bad, but, but that's a result of fossil fuel. So how do you balance that with people who are um, are benefiting in ways that they couldn't have benefited 30, 40, 60 years ago, you start saying, well, we want to push the transition a little bit faster than maybe it's ready to happen. Well, partly it's benefiting from using fuels like oil, gas, and coal. It's taking a look at India. Coal was a big part of the development of India. Now they're looking at solar and to some extent wind. They've had nuclear and also developing hydro, which is problematic. There's a justice issue there looking at the water uh, from the ice melt in the Himalayas. But yes, if you take a look at the United States, about 80% of our fuel use is fossil fuels. How did we get here? We got here from that, from invention, from education, from improvement of our health system, improvement of infrastructure. But could we have done any of this without oil, gas, and coal? If we went back in time, we didn't have the technologies for solar and wind. We really didn't have nuclear technology to be used for peaceful purposes until the 1950s. And actually that's underused. We didn't know how to use geothermal just yet. These technologies are becoming more feasible, more economic, more probable, but can they replace the oil and gas and still give that good life, still give the human security? Okay, so let's. You mentioned climate change. Let's for a second just put a hypothetical number for the sake of conversation and said, you know, uh, you know, twenty eighty. Just kind of put it out there far enough where it's it's um, not tomorrow, uh, but it's it's out there by twenty eighty. Um, it, it seems that if you if you if that's if you want to say that climate change is imminent and it's real and it's a threat, 
if you put out to the 2080 number, China has to stop doing what it's doing for anyone to matter. So how do you handle being just by saying, okay, well, we're all going to raise our standard, our standard of our cost of living. Um, but despite that, China might not adapt and therefore we're going to become poorer. Uh, we might have to move inland if you want to, if you believe those models. Um, and China is going to do what it does. So how do you think about justice in those terms? Well, then you have that justice of trade-off for the quality of life of Chinese, for example. But the Chinese see this coming on them, and they have huge costs to uh, extreme weather and climate change from desertification, uh, from the decline in their freshwater resources, uh, from the denonation of croplands, uh, all kinds of problems they're facing because of uh, temperature change and the energy, water, food nexus within China. They can see this coming. They have positioned themselves very well for the energy transition by developing rare earths, by developing uh, minerals in the DRC that are used for batteries, for EVs and these new technologies, for controlling a lot of the minerals that will be used for the energy transition. The Chinese have set themselves up. Anyone who's focused on oil and gas like Russia is not doing what the Chinese are doing, trying to control these minerals. They're out there off the boat. They're going to go to the side. Uh, Russia's exports mostly, what, 65% of minerals, mostly fuel minerals. And they're not really focusing on the new energy systems. Uh, they're going to lose political power. Actually, the, the Russian economy itself is about one-ninth ours in purchasing power parity terms, a small economy uh, compared to the Chinese and the United States. And they're not really a developing economy. They're a de-developing economy, and they're not really well diversified. The Chinese are diversified. They're, they're, they're looking forward to this energy transition. They're looking forward to how they can gain profit from it. They control a huge proportion of the battery market of the world. They have the fastest growth in EVs, including electric buses, uh, electric aircraft they're working on, electric boats, you name it. They're ahead of the game. Technologically, they've stolen most of the technology, but they're moving forward. There's a huge comp competition for the energy transition going on, and the Chinese have something going for them we, we don't have. Uh, excuse me for putting it this way, they have a dictatorship. When the 150 people in charge of the Communist Party say we're going to do it, the 2,500 people under them say to the next 1.5 million people, the next 15 million people, the next 1.5 billion people, this is what we're doing, and everyone salutes and moves forward, or they get thrown in jail. <laughs> right. Here, here we have a, a debate and a dysfunction in our Congress for federal policy, and states are the ones that are going to make the changes happening. And even there, there's dysfunction and dispute and debate about where the United States is going. I am not in favor of dictatorship. I am in favor of democracy. I like living in a democracy. I like the idea I can go on this program and criticize senators and congressmen and presidents and so forth, and I'm not going to end up in a gulag. This is a great thing about the United States. That's the real freedom here. It's not the freedom to lie about data. It's the freedom to argue things and actually the freedom to be wrong and be corrected. It's interesting. Let's go back to Russia for half a second there, because I think I have, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this statement fully, but I generally think that the the West, as predominantly the U.S. as well, uh, uh, I'm referring to, their, um, their fear and uh, the fear mongering around Russia to me is, is a little bit, um, outdated. I don't, I don't even understand anymore to your point about their economy. Um, I, I don't see them as, as a, as a threat militarily. I don't think they want to engage any kind of armed combat with any nation of any real size. Uh, the proxy war model that we saw during the cold war kind of made sense for them. And hmm. as far as you will see moving forward, um, to your point about their economy and where it's heading, it's becoming dependent, it seems like, potentially on the Chinese um, and maybe even on the Middle East a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Well, definitely. That's one of the reasons why they joined OPEC. 
because they're kind of piggybacking off OPEC's power uh, to keep their oil prices high. And they're definitely working with the Chinese on many things. Uh, the Chinese are way ahead of them technologically in most industries. But what they're working with in the Chinese are ways to zing us. They'll do something in Eastern Europe and the Chinese will do something in the South China Sea. And, and we're looking at the map and saying, okay, now what do we do? It, divide and conquer. The Chinese military is far more powerful than the Russian one. Uh, the Chinese economy is far more powerful than the Russian one. And the Russians and the Chinese claim to be, well, the Russians less so, claim to be communists. Please give me a break. One of the most capitalist countries on the planet is China. And Russia is a mafiocracy, a kleptocracy. It is not a communist country. This is not a worker's paradise. This is a worker's disaster. Well, China has a, has a weird view. It feels like once you get to, you know, they want you to kind of uh, explode and get really big, make a lot of money. And then at that point, either you kiss the ring or they're going to make you kiss the ring. So like once you kind of cross that threshold, they're going to they're going to rein you back in because they're a little concerned that you you got too big for your britches. No, but Deng Xiaoping started the whole thing uh, back in the early 80s, making a better mousetrap and then opening up your backyard gardens and starting to privatize the smaller uh, public companies and then saying it's not bad to be rich. And then the country started to take off and then there was a crackdown on corruption. Uh, the Communist Party in China wants to be in charge of everything, pretty much. Doesn't want things going off the wire. If they do, they're afraid of the country going off the wire. We're talking 250 million casually unemployed people just kind of roaming the country. Of course they want to keep an eye on them. One of their biggest concerns is their economy is going to slow down. And we're not talking about 250 million. We're talking about a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. And another worry of theirs is kind of associated with this is the one child policy, which they just, quote, got rid of which historically and the theoretically cannot be done quickly. People hold on to the one-child uh, policy in their heads because they don't want two and three children. They want that one child. But with a one-child policy, what do you have? Parents, into, for many families, grandparents, who will only have one child that they take care of. Uh -huh. Do they want that child to go to war? Uh -huh. That's a big question for the Chinese. Will they send the prince and others, and that's the way they're treated, to war to get killed? That's a big issue. And a lot of the stuff of going out, excuse me if I ramble on about the nine-dash line and all this other stuff, Go ahead. is they have to keep on looking at outside threats oh, to get yeah. their people focused on the outside, not the inside, because Thank of the you. people... People saw how miserable their lives are. They're overworked in a place like Shenzhen. It's a, a, a city area that I teach about every single year in my industrial analysis course. The growth of Shenzhen, the miracle of Shenzhen. What about the life of the typical person in Shenzhen? Mm -hmm. Working 18, 20 hours a day and then living in a hovel or even in a cage. Give me a break. I'm glad you said that because I, I keep trying to pound this point home, um, which is uh, it, it doesn't work the same um, for each country that I will name off. But generally speaking, the more authority that you see at the top, the more control and the more um, fear mongering for the outside threats you will see. So you take like North Korea, you know, they're going to fire off a Scud missile into this ocean and thump their chest because they have to protect the people from America, even though America has basically zero interest of ever invading North Korea again, um, barring them firing at us first. I mean, look at China uh, with India or with the Australians or whatever. They're protecting their people. They have to have an external threat that, that demands you need the CCP to protect you. Now, I'm not saying, to be clear, that the Chinese want a liberalized democracy. But I am saying that the CCP has to have these threats to make sure that the people 
are keenly aware that in their mind they are needed. Otherwise, you get to start asking questions. And that's the one thing that these regimes don't want is questions, to your point earlier about freedom of speech. But but also, uh, for many years, the Chinese government was very successful in absorbing the ultra-poor, the people of deep poverty, mm -hmm. become semi-poor to become lower middle class, to become middle class, and some even upper middle class. And that kept the peace. And then the export drive started to slow down. The economy started to slow down. If you're someone who holds the responsibility to make sure that economy is going forward, you're going to actually pay the price if it stops doing that. And that's part of the explanation for the BRI also, the Belt Road Initiative. All that extensive labor that is now wor not working in China. And every year there's the equivalent of a new New York City born in China. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you do with all these people? Well, you send them to Africa, you send them to the Middle East, you send them to Latin America to build roads, to build nuclear power plants, to build gold stations, uh, generating stations, to uh, build the presidential palace. I don't know how many countries I've been to to see a placard saying thank you to the People's Republic of China on the presidential palace. Mm -hmm. But that has a lot to do with it. China's outwardly reaching now with investment. First of all, to make some hard cash and other cash from other countries to expand its leverage and also to vent surplus labor. Uh, well, and the, but the other thing, and I haven't heard anybody comment on this um, to this degree, but if you look at the demographics, you know, eventually they're going to have a labor 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 shortfall. Yeah. Um, but the problem they have with that is, is their immigration policy doesn't allow for, you know, massive amount of people to come in. Um, I wonder how much of this um, putting their labor force in other countries is in hopes that maybe uh, the men will go out and marry and bring back a wife. Because if they don't do something, they're going to have a huge imbalance in the population uh, between the men and the women. And then obviously a labor short, a labor, a labor shortfall here in the next 20, 30 years. Well, sadly, there's already an imbalance between men and women. And right. there are stories behind that I'd rather not repeat because they're disturbing, some of them, but that's not all the story. And also when Chinese go abroad, my sense is they don't really intermarry into the local communities as much as let's say the Americans and the British did. Okay, I'm an, I'm an example of that. I went outward into the Middle East and I, I married a woman from the Middle East. A lot of Americans did that. A lot of Americans married Africans working AID in Latin America. Uh, we're a mixed culture. We don't have a sense of that. Well, that's hard to say because some people in the country do have a sense of their own superiority for their basic characteristics. Uh, and that is, that's really a euphemistic way of putting this. And that's a problem we have to deal with in our country. But in China, overseas, they may have an even more difficult time with that. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States has been out there for a long time. Uh, for many years, we were not considered the imperialists. And then we became them. And that was probably one of our biggest mistakes. Once we started sending the troops in and getting ourselves stuck into certain parts of the world, when people started thinking about us, they think about the military and democracy by the gun. When they think of the Chinese, they think of business. They really don't think of Chinese troops landing in Iraq. They think of the Chinese investing in an oil field. Uh, they don't think of the Chinese uh, taking over Afghanistan. What they will do is subtly start to build roads and small businesses, check out the situation, look at the risks and say, you know, this is right near us. We could benefit by extracting that trillion dollars in minerals. That's in Afghanistan. And if it helps the Afghans in the process, so be it. Right. So I want to circle back one more question on the one child policy. I had a guest on a few episodes back who said that he did not believe, and the first person I ever heard said this, he did not believe that the Chinese people followed the one child policy. Um, I, I've never heard anybody articulate that. It kind of caught me off guard. Uh, all the number, everything I ever looked at was pretty strong indicator that, that this one job policy, especially in the big cities, was forced. Maybe in some rural areas, you might see it. Um, but you brought it up, so I'm curious: Have you? Uh, 
What's your thoughts on the one child policy? I've never heard anybody articulate that it was, it was a, it's a, it's a fiction of the West. If you hate to say it like that, but that's, it's, it's not a fiction of the West for certain groups of Chinese. Okay. But for, let's say those from inner Mongolia, the last time I was in China, our guide was a woman from inner Mongolia who had four brothers and sisters. And I asked her, sure. what's this all about? And she said, it doesn't apply to our community. Right. There were, there were very strict rules for certain communities in China until recently. And those rules included getting a piece of paper that said you could live near your job and actually have a job. And if you broke the rules, you get maybe, fined. Maybe before you go further, maybe, maybe distinguish um, the people of Mongolia, uh, how they differ from what we would consider maybe normal, uh, uh, normal Han Chinese. Well, it's a different ethnic group. They're both Chinese. They're both educated in the Chinese system. Uh, China itself is mostly made up of Han Chinese, mm -hmm. but there are specific minority groups, some of whom think they feel comfortable belonging with the center and others that do not, such as those from Tibet or the Uyghurs, uh, the Muslims in the Northwest and Urumqi. Uh, considering the way they're treated, well, that's a real problem. And actually, not to go yeah. too much off the wire here, that's a real problem for the solar industry, too, because a lot of the solar panels made in China are made in that part of China by allegedly forced labor. Yeah, episode 11 of the podcast, if you want to hear about the war on the Uyghurs, we had on uh, Sean Roberts. So if people oh. want to go check that out. They can kind of hear an in-depth perspective on that but yeah the in the, the mongol the the mongol the, the mongolian people um you know they fought they have a lot of ethnic things that they fight for as well They're, they want to speak their own language they have their own customs and so um it's a much smaller percentage of the population i think the han han makes it like 90 percent of the population does that sound about right yeah, so these, a little bit more a little bit more okay these other groups would be less than 10 percent collectively um so if you say they have three four brothers and sisters okay still that's that's still by and large a one china uh, one child policy. But anyways, um, let's, so let's talk about the, you mentioned a minute ago how China has positioned itself for the energy transition. Um, and you talked about the EVs that, that will put an immense amount of pressure on their grid as they continue to move. They, uh, they raise their standard of living. And if more people go onto the EV, their grid is going to be under, um, you know, more demand. And just was it, Early this year, late last year, they were not taking coal from Australia because they're mad at the Australians and they had brownouts across the country. Um, you say they position themselves, and I understood you mean, but they can't act like that and want to move towards EVs because those two things won't go hand in hand very long. Well, they dominate wind power and wind power technology and wind power exports and solar power and solar panel exports. And the technologies of these, they, these technologies were developed in the United States, Germany, and Japan. And somehow, intent, the dominance moved to China. And that's why we have CFIUS uh, and FIRMA and all of these other laws. So there wouldn't be less adversarial capital purchases or borrowing of technologies. China has been extraordinarily successful in many ways. Let's get realistic. Uh, when I first started looking at China, when I was in college in the 1970s, it was dreadfully poor. Just getting out of the so-called cultural revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which was actually the Great Leap Backward. Backwards. I don't know why we call it. The, why do we still allow it to be called that? I've never understood that. Because it's uh, what it, it has been called for years. It's kind of inertial. It's kind of like the keyboard that has Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Why is it there? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not because that's the way we learn how to type. And yeah, No, it's... But China had an amazing amount of poverty, dreadful poverty. I remember being told by my mom, finish your breakfast, there are poor Chinese. Yes. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. And in these days, the thing is, finish your breakfast, the Chinese will eat it for you. <laughs> it's a, no, they're highly competitive, have excellent education systems built from essentially mediocre Mandarin education systems from many decades ago. 
I visited the equivalent of their MIT and Harvard in Beijing, astonishing universities. They are uh, creating engineers uh, with MAs and PhDs and very highly skilled people, much more than we are every single year. The competition isn't just in minerals and in technology, but for the creation of the new technologies, of the patents, of the trademarks, of the copyrights. And if you take a look at patenting from China from, let's say, the 1970s when I first started looking at it, it was almost non-existent in world patent data. Now they're either number two or number three. If you take a look at the World Intellectual Property Organization patent statistics, it's been astonishingly successful. Uh, but they've paid a price. They've paid a social price. Mm -hmm. They've paid a cultural price. They've paid an environmental price. And also they've paid a price where they have to reach out mm -hmm. into the world in order to stabilize what's happening back at home. They have some of the best economists in the world working in their financial system. They're trying to figure out a way of making the uh, yuan uh, internationally totally convertible. They're starting a digital yuan. This may challenge the dollar sometime in the next few decades, not tomorrow, I'll tell you that right now. The dollar is a huge proportion of all trade huge proportion of all foreign exchange. Uh, the Chinese currency is fairly small. But again, they have some brilliant people. And they, you get real focused when someone from the Communist Party leadership walks into your office as a professor in the top university and says, figure it out. If someone, a senator walked into my office and said, figure it out, I said, that's nice. Let's talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I wouldn't be fearful. Right. Of what's going on. But there are also many Chinese, hundreds of millions of Chinese who came up from dreadful poverty and that developed their sense of loyalty to the state. But Great. loyalty in any state has its limits. If you feel like your life stinks or it's stagnant, they have to keep on moving forward. They have to keep on reaching out. One of the reasons, for example, nuclear power exports are starting to develop even faster from China, well, number one, leverage. You export a nuclear power plant to any country as a Chinese power producer, you have 80 to 100 years of political leverage and economic leverage in that country. You are giving them, the host country, a huge amount of their electricity. Some of them could be as much as 25%. The Russians are doing the same thing. The Russians and the Chinese are number one and number two in nuclear power exports. What about us? We're asleep at the switch. And our nuclear industry is moribund. The only way to wake it up is to become competitive with the Russian and Chinese nuclear industries and to work with other nuclear industries with our allies, let's say the Japanese, the French, uh, the British to some extent, the Germans. This has to be an alliance of supply chains, an alliance of policymakers, an alliance of finance, because China is a giant on this. And Rosatom has $130 billion in a war chest to export nuclear power plants to various countries. We have OPIC and it's difficult to get anything through in certain circumstances. They have a full bore, full court press, to use a basketball analogy, with everyone from various organizations from the Chinese and the Russian governments landing in a sub-Saharan Africa, North African country, Middle East country, whatnot. Our nuclear power plants are this. We'll help with the finance. We'll help with the education. We'll help with the infrastructure. What do you think, guys? And then the question is, well, what about the Americans? And we're not even in the game. So, uh, okay, so I agree that, that that's the threat that they pose. But let me, let me ask you this. My general read on, we'll take the motivations for what the U.S., why the U.S. had done it. Um, you touched on the reserve currency, which is a huge motivating factor. There's others. But the U.S., if you go read this, like uh, Michael Pillsbury's 100-year yeah. marathon, you know, it, it, that to me summarizes 
U.S. foreign policy, which is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like we have played that game over and over and over again. It feels like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's more or less some of the reasons, according to him, we engaged the Chinese uh, against the Russians was we thought they would be friendly. In the Middle East, you talk about Afghanistan or Iran or whatever. You know, we're trying to play all these games and trying to get these people to work with us and put pressure on those people. And the Chinese are just like, hey, let's do business. Now, I agree that the Chinese strategy, uh, first off, is far more effective than, than our strategy is. Uh, and the advantage of uh, that they that they have is that they're not trying to get into the morality game, uh, influence things. But... Here's where I think the Chinese could be in trouble. So the U.S. foreign policy, I'm not a big fan of the of, of kind of how we've done stuff. I think the Chinese are, are, are better. However, when you talk to people in Africa, I can't speak to the Middle East, but talk to people in Africa, they are very displeased with how a lot of these contracts actually get executed on the ground with the Chinese. Yeah. And so it wouldn't surprise me that the Chinese model is a step of, a step better than the U.S., but ultimately it will fail more spectacularly because – Sub-Saharan Africa, in my opinion, has almost to the point now where they're really at this, they're going to say we've had enough. They've had enough of their own corruption. They've had enough of external corruption. There is, because you can't hide it anymore. For so long, um, we were kind of in our, our silos. That's no longer the case. I don't know if the Chinese, the way they've done some of these deals in Sub-Saharan Africa, and some have been good, if they can continue to push that kind of stuff in Sub-Saharan Africa. I don't know about the Middle East. So I'm curious your thoughts. Um, and not eventually see it blow up in their face where people are like, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. It's the same stuff, a different model. What, what are your thoughts? Well, it depends on how they adjust. Early on in the 1960s, uh, they supported uh, many of the leftist Marxist regimes in sub-Saharan Africa. And they built, built railway lines that were not built to extract materials like what the British and the French and... Well, the Belgians, they were god-awful in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo with Leopold and so forth. Talk about the worst forms. So they were seen as the anti-imperialists. Now that they are in Africa, some of the countries are seeing that they signed contracts that said that a certain proportion of the local population would be working on those roads and railroads, and they're not seeing it. And sometimes these roads are breaking down, the bridges are cracking, and all kinds of other things are happening. And the coal generating stations are subcritical, to put it mildly. Uh, the Chinese could adjust to that. They could fix this. But the question is, where is the money coming from anyone else? And, and that's what the question is for many people in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, mm -hmm. where's America? Where's America in all of this? Uh, the Chinese are coming in and they're saying, we're going to build roads and and electricity generation stations. We're going to have. We're not going to have arguments about climate change. We're not going to have arguments about uh, what is imperial and what is not. We're just going to build it, and your folks are going to start moving forward. This is where the Chinese. I think I should cut you off, but this is where the Chinese have a huge advantage. And Americans, uh, if you don't work internationally, um, maybe you're not aware of some of this stuff. But um, you know, I, I don't know all the Chinese laws per se. Um, but you know, you can go to jail as an American for doing something in a foreign country that has nothing to do with the U.S. Okay, and so let's you know, and so it's, it's robbery laws essentially. Um, now, how those are executed and who they're they're, they're 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 prosecuted is one thing, but let's make no bones about it. If you want to do business in some of these remote villages, some of these remote parts of emerging markets around the world. Uh, buying a goat or, you know, slipping a 20 or whatever it might be, the custom of that area, that's a standard practice. And so if the U.S. government really puts the fear of God into people that you're going to be prosecuted and you're a small business, well, you're not going to go over there and try to work because the, the risk is too high. That's one thing. And then you can't afford to understand potentially the local content laws in the nation you're working in. So right now I'm talking to a lot of Western African nations and I'm always encouraging them, hey, aim small miss small so you have these big grandiose goals of 400 page reports of all this stuff you need to do what's hard to attract you know the smaller guy from the u.s to come work with you but they actually have a lot to offer um but there's problems on the u.s side you got the tax code you got these bribery laws uh on your side you have to work out as well china has been able to bridge that gap a lot easier um and, and I, I suppose it's from they don't have the anti-bribery laws 
They probably made their tax code a lot better. Uh, their banking's probably a little bit easier to get. W- what's your read on that? Uh, well, you hit a nerve. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, mm-hmm. I think, with regard to the morality of business, is a good thing. Yeah. But the French actually incorporate, quote, bribes, which are not called that, into expenses. Many other companies from other countries do the same thing. Uh, The Chinese law with regard to this is not even near the U.S. law. If you are a U.S. citizen working overseas, you still have to file your taxes. You have a certain amount of your income that is deducted. I think the last time I checked, it was about 108 or 110,000 a year. After that, you have to pay taxes. You still have to file your taxes. You have to say what your investments are in the country, whether you have bank accounts and all this. Many countries don't have that. That extraterritorial aid doesn't exist. So let's say you're a small businessman and you're a consultant and you're competing with someone from the United Kingdom and Germany. They don't have those roles. And actually those countries and companies with them, those countries can hire them at a lower rate. And they'll come because net, they're still doing better than the Americans. Uh, There is a great deal of incentive for Americans not to work overseas. For small business, it's a huge risk, particularly if you walk into a market. And most Americans, when they think of contract law, they think of if someone breaks the contract, okay, we take them to court or we go to arbitration and we can resolve this. It happened pretty quickly in the United States to resolve that. In many countries that I've lived in, you could be in quote arbitration in the court system for three generations and it won't be settled. Things are getting better in many countries and also uh, in this country, there is some fairness in the courts, but it's not totally fair. Uh, If uh, regular folks started to go up against billion-dollar law firms, they'd be toast. There is no fairness in justice, getting back to that term justice. But at least here you can have some say. But in some countries, the contract is negotiated after it is signed. And it doesn't matter what the contract says if circumstances change. And a lot of American small businessmen can't handle that. As soon as they hear that, they'll stay away. Unless there's some protection from the U.S. government, some kind of insurance protection, something from OPEC, something from the State Department, something from Commerce Department, helping them out, a lot of them aren't going to touch it. Uh, Sorry. I say you can't blame them because they don't have the – I mean – we were looking at a deal for South Africa to bring in some uh, products, uh, some uh, steel uh, products, and uh, just the you dealing with the Department of Commerce and all that stuff, and having to get an international attorney to make sure we weren't anti-dumping violations, and then to find out that within five years they could come back and change their mind and investigate that maybe we were in anti-dumping because they don't actually tell you. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, the risk here is is unbelievable, and that wasn't even the South African side; that was the U.S. side. Well, yes, there, there is a lot of risk, and certainly these things could be streamlined and be made more pro-business. Uh, there are other countries, one in Central Asia, not to be mentioned, that tried to start its mining industry with uranium and coal. And they brought in a lot of firms from Canada, the United States, and Australia, and the government changed And the next government said, wait a minute, we're not getting enough tax revenues from these big foreign companies. We're going to change the tax laws. Right. These companies went under, and these were not small companies. Yes, there is a lot of risk, but there is a lot that governments can do to protect their people overseas. Uh, A lot of this, uh, looking at the Middle East and North Africa, has to do with WASTA connections, RACUSA. You know, zucchini, when you grow zucchini in the backyard, it takes over everything. Zucchini is wasta connected to connected wasta all over the place. If you're in a certain country in a certain part of the world, not to be named, and you have those connections, and somebody gives you a hard time, 
saying the contract is no longer valid, you call up your uncle. Your uncle calls up his friend, who calls up a general, who calls up the president. Problem solved. And it's all informal. It's not within legal frameworks. And if you're a poor, relatively weak, small American business person, you don't even know that's happening. You don't know the informal networks. You have this in right. Africa, too. Try doing work in Nigeria. Try doing work in Sudan. Or even in Tanzania or Kenya. You'll have similar things. That's not to say don't do it. Get involved with due diligence. Get a good partner on the other side who can protect you, who has the WASTA, who has the connections. That's why a lot of these countries say you can't go into business without having a partner from this country. In a way, for many small business people, they're doing them a favor if this partner is an okay person. And there have been successful small business people in the Gulf, in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and elsewhere, Morocco. They have been successful. But it's not like in the United States. You cannot think like an American when you're doing business overseas. You do that you won't last a year. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I know we're getting close to time. Let's um, let's circle back around to where we started, which is energy transition, justice. We covered a lot of ground here, and um, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was really good. So, how do we frame, or how would you like to frame? Maybe a better way to put it: um, justice on all the on, on these issues, and and what are some points that you might want people to be to think about as they think about, you know, energy justice, climate justice, um, business justice, how to think about it. Because, um, you know, one of the problems that I have uh, when you talk to maybe someone from China is they say, well, the Chinese way of mor morality is a little different than yours. It's like, well, okay, I, I can kind of halfway understand that, but that also can't be an excuse just to lie to me blatantly, you know, because you'll have the, the kind of the, the safe face thing or something. And, and they're like, well, it kind of is like that. It makes it makes the conversation to be, uh, the way you think about it to be a lot more difficult than it should be, but that is the world we live in. Well, you need to have anthropologists at your side, people who understand the cultures, people who understand that when, let's say, uh, someone in Japan or China says yes, what they're really saying is maybe, and you have to read their faces. And the perspective of some cultures doing something like that is not a lie. That's just the way business is done. And in some cultures, you have to go to the head man or the head woman to get the real decision. And you may be talking with the wrong person. Uh, there's an apocryphal story of someone being in a Saudi Navy vessel and saw someone uh, with uh, an admiral's uniform on and went up to him and started talking with him. And another guy in the boat said, nudge, no, 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 that's not the guy in charge. It's this guy over here. He's in the family. Mm. Talk with him. And once you understand things, that's changing in Saudi Arabia too. It's becoming more professionalized, changing in many other parts of the world. But you have to understand the culture and the language of people you're dealing with. That's where anthropologists come in. They're experts in understanding culture and language. We need a lot more anthropologists working in business to help us understand how we can deal with this overseas. Uh, dealing with the Chinese can get really complicated because it's so opaque to Americans. Mm -hmm. First of all, you have to learn Chinese. And I tried that way back when and get the ice pack, put it on my head, you know, for the best. Uh, it's not only that understanding the direct translation, it's understanding the connotations the emotional meaning, the in-between-the-words understanding. That you really don't get unless you have an expert beside you who's been right. living in the culture, understands the culture. You may take at face value a word said by someone in any country, and you may understand it as an American definition, connotation, and then you get all upset. Oh, my God, he lied to me. Well, in his viewpoint, he didn't lie to you. Uh-huh. He was explaining things from his cultural perspective to someone who's not of his culture, and things are happening behind the scenes. It's like when people say they're going to be on time. I'm sure you've run into this in many countries. 
Mm -hmm. I, I gave a talk at a UN conference in, in Nairobi uh, it's a 2007. I was scheduled for 8.30. There I was, the American, in the room at 8.30, completely empty. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the janitor walked up to me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I have a, a talk at, at 8.30. Nobody's coming until 10.30. Go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> to me, as an American, they're late. That's not good. That's upsetting. It's almost insulting. In some cultures, well, there are other things going on. Mm -hmm. There are other ideas, other issues that take precedence, family, talking with people, understanding what's going on, doing side deals, things like this. And in some countries, you have meetings at 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. For Americans, it's like, what are you talking about? It's after 9 if you're a senior. It's <laughs> after 5 if you're a floor worker. In some countries, you get a call at 11 p.m. We're going to a wedding. This has actually happened to me. We're going to a wedding of my cousin. It starts at midnight. I may get you back to the hotel by three. Is that okay? My first, my, my first meeting was at eight o'clock. And of course, I thought this is going to be an important thing to do. And I did it. And I learned a tremendous amount. Uh -huh. We have to be more relaxed with other cultures, to understand other cultures. Uh, Americans often, particularly Americans who haven't traveled a lot, think everyone has to be like me or I just don't like it. Uh -huh. Okay, when you leave Texas and you go to Maine, they're not like you in Texas. <laughs> That's right. You go to uh, West Hollywood from Dallas, you know, this is a different world. Uh -huh. This is a totally different world. Uh -huh. Now let's say you're a Texas oil man back in the 1950s, 60s. Now let's make early 70s. And you're given a chance to get a huge oil field in Libya. This actually happened. What did Armin Hammond do? He learned some Arabic phrases on the flight to Libya, which included many stops because we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. Right. And had the contract written up in the dialect of Libya. Had cultural people with him at the time guess who got the deal? He got it because it's a sign of respect. Uh -huh. It's the same thing when dealing with the Chinese. If you walk into a discussion with the Chinese and you're immediately defensive, you immediately think this is the competition. They're going to burn me. You will lose. And they will twist you around in circles. They're very good at that, actually. A lot of the PLA generals are business people. Many Chinese wear many hats and have many names. Uh, in the Arab world, people have different names. They they come by, let's, let's say, Abu Muhammad, where his ma ma name might be something totally different in his business. That's not lying. It's just that's what he's called by different communities in his culture. And this is a leap that Americans have to make if we're going to compete with countries like the Chinese. We can't say my product is good, my company is efficient, my workers are great. Take the contract. Uh-uh. Mm -hmm. No. It may entail many nights drinking mint tea until three in the morning, talking about Islam and history. And I've done this with some people in West Africa, in Northwest Africa. And then you'll start talking the talk with you once they feel comfortable with it. There's a lot more human stuff. For Americans, it's more this is a contractual arrangement. These are the data. This is our technology. This is the price. Let's go. You do that, it's considered an insult by many people in the world. Every country is different, and every area in the country is different. I could talk about this forever. Sorry, I think our time no, is getting no, away. No, no, it's, it's, it's great. I was going to say, it's funny to hear you say that because how I got my, my start working international was, I, I won't tell the whole story, but the short of it is I volunteered to go down for free to visit some people in South Africa who were, you know, I was hoping to make business connections with and do a presentation at their conference. They didn't pay me. I, I mean, they gave me a, I think I got a hat somewhere, but you know, I, I my company, we pay, we, we put the bill to go down there and spend a week to go meet with all their uh, various companies and peoples and just have lunch and dinner. And, and, you know, you know, it's a 16 hour flight, you know, and, and it takes a 
the doors that opened that first trip. I'm still paying dividends on that to this day. Um, and we didn't go down there with any expectation of closing any deal. Just go with the lay of the land. And it's not like driving to Houston or flying to D.C. or going to Hollywood. It's a, it's a really a – and they appreciate that because they understood that, A, I had done it, and, B, the fact that I had done it had separated me from everyone else who said they were going to do it and never did. You know, And so it's, it's, yeah, quite, it it's hard for Americans, to your point, to grasp that, but it's really – you can't emphasize it enough. It's respect. It's wanting to understand their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's taking the effort to learn about them. It's taking the effort to learn about their country, their culture, their people, to sit down with their families and friends. Very meaningful. American contract negotiations are in boardrooms or in bars or in restaurants, and it's all about the numbers and words, often. Mm-hmm. wasn't always that case, and it's not always the case now even. But I'll give you another story without getting too specific. Um, Setting up an important field study in a Northwest African country. I didn't get the agenda. And my group is showing up in three days. I'm in the capital of the country. What am I going to do? They're in South Africa. They're flying up the next day. I don't even know what we're doing. So I hop in a taxi. And I get driven over to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Big carved mahogany doors, and I knock on the door. And this gigantic guard comes out. Can I help you? Immediately, I'm thinking I made a mistake. Could I please speak with the equivalent of your undersecretary for North American Affairs? <laughs> and he's looking at me like, who is this guy? So he picks up the phone and he starts talking to the fella that I wanted to meet. And the fellow says, what's this guy's name? And I told the, the guard my name. He said, oh, bring him up, bring him up. So I went up there and I said, sir, like an American, this is many years ago, could I please have the agenda? And he looks at me quizzically and then brings in the tea guy. So let's, let's talk, sir. Let's talk for a while. So mint tea after mint tea after. One of the most important things to be a negotiator is hold your water. Excuse me for being uh, so (laughs) forward with that. And we're into about an hour and a half of this, and we're talking about history and our families and and things in the past. And then he opens up the top drawer and says, oh, here's your agenda. I thought, aha, that's how to get this thing done. So he said, thank you very much. I have to go to a family event. So I got in a taxi, went back to the hotel. As soon as I get into the room, someone calls me. Dr. Sullivan, we had to change your agenda. We'll have one for you on the bus tomorrow. They did that for the next five days. What happened a month later, there was a big attack in the capital city. They knew it was going to happen. They didn't want to share the information with me or anyone else. They didn't want my people to know about it. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes you have to understand, and you'll never pick up on some of this stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's it. Go ahead, sorry. The first time I landed in Cairo, I knew standard Arabic. Didn't help me at all. (laughs) There I am. I studied the map of Cairo. I read 100 books about the country. First day, I got lost. <laughs> so don't think you want to do business in the Middle East just landing there right from day one. I've been studying that part of the world for close to 30 years, and I still have a lot to learn. Yeah. Okay, well, let's wrap it there. I know we're up against the clock here. Uh, love to get you back on again in the future. I think we could find dissect more stuff and and uh and chew the fat a little more but it was good to get you back on it's been guys hard to believe it's been over four or five years now since we've uh, talked at least on this medium so it's uh good to get you back on this new podcast and uh people can follow you i guess on twitter is that the best spot to send them to well i'm on linkedin but twitter i think i'm the most active okay uh, and uh i'll be doing a lot more writing and a lot more public speaking uh, okay once i'm retired uh i see uh, a goal of mine for the rest of my life too 
help people understand these intercultural things, understand energy, environmental issues, and get out there more. Now, I've been doing this with senior military officers and some of the top students in the country and the world. Now it might be time to branch out my audience. So anyway, uh, thank you, Ryan. Uh, and we'll talk. All right, very good. And look forward to uh, hearing what's next for you. And you said, I think, next month too. So we'll be following yeah. along. We'll link to your Twitter profile, which is Dr. P.J. Sullivan. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes so people can go follow you there. Uh, for everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll talk to you 